Blog Talk Radio. Well, it is Sunday morning in the Word, and we study the Word of God systematically. We not only study to show others, but ourselves approve unto God a workman that needs not to be ashamed of one who rightly divides the Word of truth. And that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit today. We're uh, embracing a new mini-series. Of course, you know, we've been on the overcoming way for a number of weeks. But um, tonight, today, rather, this morning, we want to go into another teaching, a mini-series to kind of promote kind of what we've been talking about all along, but just come from a different vantage point. I was, um, as you know, I teach children as well as um, in various forms of ministry. And so I was prompted by the Spirit, uh, based on a conversation I had with someone, to kind of address that same topic because I believe we really are seeing in these days a very similar uh, dichotomy to uh, what is taking place in our um, society. And so I want to introduce a new mini-series today after we pray, get your notebook out. We will flow through the Word of God systematically. And then um, either next week or maybe next week during the week, we'll finish this series. And I believe it'll help drive the church with some uh, some straight, clear-cut directives as to how to advance in these times. Amen? Well, let's pray and not delay. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day, knowing that this is the day that you have made. We rejoice in the glad. We do thank you for another opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. It's the authority of your word that gives me confidence that to make boldly known the mysteries of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I do lean and depend on the Holy Spirit as educator and guide to give me clear articulation of speech and deliberation of thought as I make manifold known the wisdom of God. Holy Spirit, I say, have your way. Do what only you can do. Anoint the people's ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. And, Father, in everything that shall be accomplished and revealed, you be glorified, for it is in the name of Jesus that we praise you and give you glory in Jesus' precious name. Foundation of this text is found in Genesis, the story of creation, and really the correction of creationism. Um, scholars would often really like to debate this and to get in, into an uh, uh, in-depth dialogue about uh, how uh, this really changes the gamut of, of creationism. It challenges a lot of secular perspectives about evolution and the various scientific results with this this uh, this great flood that God calls for as a result of judging the earth and allowing the earth to uh, experience a uh, experience uh, such um, such a massive impact that would challenge the theories of how things evolved into uh, humanity and various things. So this is a very, very uh, scientific uh, uh, and intellectual stimulant, if you will, if you want to debate with theology, the uh, creation story and the creationism correction. So uh, really these passages are found uh, uh, in Genesis chapter 5 through 9. Um, but, of course, you have to read the entire book of Genesis because here uh, is a course correction given by God. God ultimately changes 
his mind on the concept of creation because of corruption. And so I think it's important that if we're going to reflect on the changing of times and our impact, that we have an act revelation. Now, act revelation is not act, the book of Acts. But we do give a light in the book of Acts, which I'll dwell in next week. I'm a little more church leadership-driven for the next lesson and church leadership-driven as to why this, this teaching is so necessary for us. But I want to coin this as the ACT revelation, the ACT, A-C-T, as an acronym. And the acronym defines itself as awakening the church to, to the time, awakening the church to the time. And I want to encourage believers and the church to take its rightful place as the church. That's my purpose, goal, and objective, to, to encourage believers to take their rightful place simply as the church. And how do we do that? And I want to define systematically how we do that. By using as our Old Testament illustration in the first chapter, the power of the great engaging, the power of the great engaging or empowered, empowering the great engaging. Empowering the Greek engagement. Let's let's talk about Genesis chapter five through nine. Of course, you know it's the account of Noah and the ark. And I've been studying Noah and the ark because we we have a great um, uh, change that's taking place in our society with reformations of laws and redefinitions of concepts, uh, traditions, and uh, customs. Are going through changes, governmental uh, pressures, and a lot of a lot of political drama. In addition to that, there's a there's a stifling, I believe, by the spirit of God, and a hesitance to really engage uh, uh, theology and conviction and belief and faith in light of the pressures of of the transforming of corruption in society. It's like it's unpopular really to really voice our conviction. They don't care that you have conviction, but to voice them and to and to view uh view statements in light of judgment is, is almost frowned upon. Like coming against what you don't believe is now a hate crime and hate speech because of society and and in light of all of this we have to engage as the people of god and as a man of god coming before the people of god teaching them the word of god i have to remind us every once in a while to ultimately resolve to contend for the faith the apostles understood this when they were writing in the new testament that the beliefs and the eyewitnesses of jesus his miraculous power would fade away. There would need to be a transforming connection, a transformational generation that was set on the power of the Holy Spirit as the clear resolve and the clear mark of engaging the world with faith. And so they wrote to the faith. They wrote to, uh, in a way, by, by the impression of the Holy Spirit, they wrote in a way to awaken us as to what it was called to be 
the churches. So as we study, as we study this uh, this concept, I encourage you in your own time to really indulge into this 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 act, the awakening, the church to the times, because a lot of people compartmentalize the authority of the church. But here in this teaching, we we begin with the premise that the church has been authorized to dominate the influence and the direction of world government and world and world policies and world convictions, because the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, and all that dwell therein. Matter of fact, the institutions and concepts of government and structure and law and order all came from the source of the Bible. Because the word of God is the final authority. It is the ultimate authority. And we need to, as the church, capitalize off of that authority. And we will never capitalize off of that authority if we don't acknowledge the, the access and the advantages that we have as being the church. I always tell people, don't let a sinner tell you how to be the church. And so here, you know, of course, the story in a nutshell is that God had called a man out of unrighteousness because of the creation destruction. When God had placed man into the garden to live and exist in a quality of life that only him and God could have perpetual fellowship and harmony with one another, eradicated from a sin consciousness, um, that was corrupted. Of course, Adam and Eve caused that corruption because they ate from the tree of the good of evil. God was not withholding anything from them. But he told them, don't eat of it, because he did not want them to dwell, dwell in them uh, a sin conscience. And that the tree of the knowledge of, it, of good and evil gives birth to a sin consciousness. And you have to understand the digestion. It could have all been, well, I'm not going to go there because I don't want to mess up people's theology, but it could have all, anyway, praise the Lord. We need to, we need to, as believers, really look at creationism because it is in the first books, five books of the Bible, that we get God's ideal. God's ideal about how he wants fellowship with mankind, all the provisions of man being uh, fulfilled, the promises, the plans, the purposes, and the uh, passions of his heart are expressed in those chapters where, where man and him have isolated Perpetual fellowship where there is no corruption. Well, of course, that got distorted within the first five chapters, which is more than five, five years, years. It's hundreds of years summarized in chapters. And so at this point, God is, is talking about, I'm going to restart. I'm going to reboot. I'm going to revamp. I'm going to resolve this conflict once and for all. Was he looking for Noah to be a type of Christ? No, but the the type of ministry that Noah had, uh, if if they had known what Noah would be building would be significant to the survival of mankind, they would probably have tried to stop him from building it due to the climate of corruption. And, And even with us, if they knew what we were building, the kingdom of God, and they knew how to stop it, and I'm talking about the world, the world system. You get what I'm saying? They would never. They would. They would try to eradicate Christianity altogether, but they can't. So we need to be awakened, awakened to the as the church to the time. 
because God is anointing us for the great engagement. All right? My first point is to embrace the, the embrace the awkwardness of the ark. You remember Genesis five through nine. God had told him to build an ark. There was no rain. There was no concept of ships at the time, but God told him to build. And a good thing that we know that when we are directed by the Lord, the steps of a good man are not suggested by the Lord, but they're ordered of the Lord. And when we're, when we're, when we're faced in an ark situation where we have to build in spite of what other people see and understand, we got to take courage to uh, stay consistent with that still, small voice. God says his sheep know his voice and the voice of another. They will not follow why? Because we have embraced the awkwardness of the great ark. Why do I say it's awkward? Because nobody's seen it before. Nobody's done it before. And just because it hasn't been done doesn't mean it can't be done. And we have done, we have advanced people in arts and skills and studies and, and, and scholastics and sports. But what about faith? And that's our challenge to you with, and my challenge to you in teaching the Word of God with such passion uh, every Sunday and every Thursday. What is going to awaken us to, to the awkwardness of this arc experience that we all should achieve in life? All of us have unique purposes and united purposes and universal purposes. But we have to find out for ourselves what God has graced us with. And at first, it's awkward. When Moses was called, it was a burning bush. When Jesus was, was called, he was running from, 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 um, from the king that was trying to kill him. Glory to God. When Isaiah was called, he was rambling naked on the ground. When, when, uh, when Jeremiah was called, he was a shy and fearful man. Even Moses had a stammering tongue. Joshua was shocked in transition of having to take on a group without having understanding of how to lead. He had never led before. It's an awkwardness. Then the ark is symbolic of our trust and our commitment to stay with God and to do exactly what God tells us to do so that we can exist in the quality of life that he has provided for us. We have to embrace the awkwardness of the art. We have to stay consistent with the still small voice, but we also have to shake not at the attempts of power play because what the world is engaging in is trying to stop us from, from existing in the power of God that transforms us into that very image that creates that actual kingdom. Hallelujah. So we got to stand and having done all, stand. That's what I mean by embracing the awkwardness of, of the ark. God is calling you to build an ark. He's calling the church to build an ark in a society that is, is depraving itself of the God quality of life because they are avoiding the standards of God. So we are going to see in these times more clearly who is the church and who's not the church. And I always insert this. Don't let a sinner tell you how to be a saint. If they knew how to be a saint, they would be a saint. But because they've embraced the sin consciousness, let them keep on sinning. 
and you pray that God save them. But the part of Jesus' salvific work is transforming the people that he saved. Because at the root of salvation is deliverance. At the root of salvation is the discovery of the greater way, of the new way that God has provided for us. So we need to embrace the awkwardness of the ark. And secondly, secondly, we need to, as the church, eradicate the lukewarm gospel. You remember with the seven churches that God had given in the church of Revelation 3.16, one of the churches he got rid of because they were lukewarm. They didn't know really what they believed. And in the day that we're living in, we need to know exactly what we believe and why we believe what we believe. Because that is coming under fire. That is coming under the test of time. And time will prove always who is right. Time will prove always who is consistent. Time will prove always who is on the Lord's side. And it is a declaration that we're coming to that we will have to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Why? Because we've eradicated the lukewarm gospel. We, we approach ministry with faith instead of fear. We approach ministry with, with a father's heart instead of a fearful heart. Why is that? Because, because faith looks, faith understands that the world is framed by the word of God. The word of God is final authority. The word of God is what drives us to change. The word of God is what empowers us to, to stay consistent to the things of God and exist in the power of God. For the kingdom of God is not in words, but is in power. And these power plays that, that try to shake us in times, we stand against. Why? Because we don't mix the message behind the gospel. The gospel didn't come just to just make us love one another. It came to change us. And it, came, it, it changes us into the very image that presents to God a purified sacrifice. Jesus came on the earth to present, uh, present God's best way to mankind. So we don't mix the message behind the gospel. We detach from the ambition of settling for the form. Because many have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. We exist in power because we are building an intangible kingdom in a tangible world that does not have the teachings of Christ. Why? We are eradicating the lukewarm gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto, unto salvation. Romans 16. So in Genesis 5 through 9, we've embraced the awkwardness of the ark. But Revelation 3.16, it reminds us to eradicate the lukewarm gospel. Why? Because we have driven a word-driven revolution. If ye abide in me, and my word abides in you, then you can take advantage of what God has for us. Amen? So I want to caution us with that. Certainly, I want to encourage us to equip the saints for the combat of ministry. One of the, of course, you know, the word church is, is a derivative of the word ecclesia or ecclesia, either way you want to put it, which means the called out ones. We have been driven out by what? The Holy Spirit. Why? So, so what it does, and of course you can put down Ephesians 4, God has placed some in the church, the preachers, blessed are those who preach the gospel. But the purpose of the gifts of the church, the apostle, pastor, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, 
is for the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, and the edification of the body, the building up. Now, in order for that to take place, we have to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Amen. And so the ministry has, has, has come under fire. And don't get it twisted. The church is under attack. And we have to take combat. The kingdom suffers violence, and the violence taken by force. We, we have never seen a cowardly approach to church. Nor have we seen a casual. And in contemporary times, they have minimized the value and the authority and the aggressiveness that we should embody as people of faith. If the world has something to offer, he would not conform us. But because there is no winning with the world, he has taken us out of darkness and placed us in the kingdom of his dear son. And when he does that, he embeds the obligation of sanctification. That's what we're talking about in equipping the saints. We tell them, come out from among them and be ye separate. Touch not the unclean thing. Be holy, even as your father is holy. Then not only that, we empower personal devotion. We empower personal devotion. Why? Because you can't seek something, seek your righteousness and seek salvation for somebody else. You've got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You've got to know that God is God for yourself. You've got to know in whom you believe and be fully persuaded that he is able to do exactly what he wants you to do. Why? Because not only are we embedded in the obligation of saying we have empowered personal devotion, so, and, and then also we've engaged supernatural intercession. Because if my people who were called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will they hear from heaven. He will forgive their sins, and Lord knows he'll heal their land. God is calling for his church to be the church. Why? We need to be awakened as the church to the time, because the times drive that we embrace the awkwardness of being the church by erecting an ark, an ark which is symbolic of our devotion to God. It, it demands of us to eradicate a lukewarm gospel because they place a lot of things in there. It said, don't let someone de um, de um, beguile you with vain philosophies and not after Christ. And then we got to equip the saints for combat because not only are you going to have to be prepared as the church, you're going to have to fight and stand there as the church. Because the weapons of our warfare, they are not called, but they are mighty to God to the pulling down of strongholds. And God has given us an armor to stand against these, these things. And you can go to Ephesians 6 and look at the six, um, six um, parts of his armor and engage in embedding the obligation of sanctification and power devotion and engage in supernatural intercessions. Fourthly, I want to encourage you as believers to esteem yourselves as believers to righteousness. Now, we're going to end up in Titus, and this is where our little Bible study comes through. But righteousness exalts a nation, and sin is a reproach to any people. Our key verse is, is, is uh, Proverbs 14:34, which I just quoted. And then also Proverbs 21 says, to do righteousness is more acceptable to the Lord. 
In Proverbs 12, 28, it says the path of life is righteousness. And God, Jesus, through the work of redemption, cleanses us from all unrighteousness so he can present us faultless and we can come boldly to God and exist in God's grace. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 through 5. I love this definition that the Holy Spirit gave me for righteousness. Righteousness is the act and resolve through redemption of Christ's actions that took that it took to empower his church. These are the actions that so righteousness, when we say exist in God's righteousness, we we existed in the confidence of, of, of Christ's actions that he took through redemption to empower us as the church. Why? Because you need power to fight with power. And the things that are coming at us are power moves. What do you really believe? And now we live in a society, see, the church has so incorporated the world into it. You got preachers now joining fraternities and sororities saying, okay, it's okay. No, when you, when you, when you accept the cross, you cast all of those other things away. And the only thing that you become fraternal to is the blood-stained death. Hallelujah. I would, I would be a little cautious if your pastor just supporting some fraternity. That's a Greek organization, Greek letters that were insert, uh, inserted by Greek mythologists and Greek worshipers and satanic worshipers. And there's no need to be a part of those things. Why? Because you have esteemed believers to righteousness. And there's nothing righteous in those organizations. Those organizations were founded on the premise of control and power plays to prevent people from being what God wants them to be and to tell them otherwise as to what they want them to be. They are power plays, and it's a demonic influence, and they try to get your children in college. And they say they can't get a quality education unless they join those things. Why? because we have an esteemed believers to righteousness. This is an example. But in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, it says, look, but after that kindness, verse 4, and the love of God and our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. He brought us out. By the washing and the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the the hope of eternal life. And this is a faithful saying, and these things I will, that after that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful and maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. But avoid foolish questionings and genealogies and contentions, they're striving about the law, for they are unprofitable. A man that is a, a heretic after the first and the second abomination rejects, knowing that he is such subverted and sinner, being condemned of himself. Amen? So we got to stand against that and embrace and esteem believers to righteousness. The scripture says, cast not away your confidence, because in it lies great recompense. Glory to God of reward. We have to esteem this righteousness, uh, righteousness because righteousness is the act and the resolve through redemption and the actions which Christ took 
to empower his church. Jesus did a whole lot for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despised the shame, and God, as a result, gave him the name that was above every name, that at that name, every knee should bow. And every tongue should confess that he's the owner. He got this. And anybody that calls upon the name of the Lord, glory to God, they shall be saved. Why do I say this? Because there's forces of believers, there's forces that believers need to awake to. We really have to awake to the reality that we have to define Christian practice. We have to defend and contend for the faith. We have to develop convictions for the families. We have to drive competence in spiritual education, and we have to dedicate and consecrate ourselves to the service of the Lord. And this is not just attending church service. Why? There, there, is, there is a quality of life which God has for us, and we will never achieve it playing church. Ambitions are often in awakenings. Why? Why? Because, because when we are not awakened, the world is. And they're creating a counterfeit system to that. So we have to have a competency in church-driven leadership, and we have to have conversion discipleship and correction in righteousness. My final point for tonight is that we've got to erect an altar of reform. So many people have casualized church that it's a joke. I was looking at a church reformation, uh, transitional leadership, uh, this past weekend, and I just saw how commercialized the church was. Everything was just kind of put together. It was just, it just looked like a great show on TV. No bearing witness that the Spirit of God was really transforming the lives of the people. Not, not really appealed to see a, a, a global uh, uh, resolve to prayer. I mean, some of the things were vocalized to, to push some things, but, but the fervor of the Spirit through faith wasn't evident because there was no altar, emphasis on the altar of reform. And even in our society, and I'm going to give the church leadership next in the next lesson, I'm going to deal with you a little stronger, based on the prompting of the Lord. Um, we've got to do better with this altar of reform. The altar experience has become so trite that it's almost irrelevant. We've got to conform not to the world, cast light over darkness, carry the cross in spite of the crisis, call on the name of the Lord, and contend for the faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great engaging. Help us to the awakening of the church for the time. Lord, you never desired religion and tradition. You always desired a relationship. Help us become impassionate and compassionate for the lifting of the language of faith in the earth. Hallelujah.
Well, Father, we delight in knowing the truth that makes us free. And for that, we praise you. And we give you glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I trust that whatever you set your hands to do, you will do because great is he that's within you than he that's within the world. We're going to conclude this lesson, and we're going to give some more directives for ministers and ministries for the awakening of the church to the times, the Acts revelation, the Acts revelation. Praise the Lord. God bless you. Thank you for listening today. Have a great Lord's Day. Go to a local church and celebrate with the other believers. The great experience that we have in corporate worship. And I pray that the anointing of the Lord will increase on every servant and every leader today. That the church will be awakened and erect that altar of reform. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.